Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Seth, are you there? I'm here. Well, we're back, Seth. We're back on another episode of the Addictive Podcast. And uh, you and I have been really going crazy for, uh, for this past week. Uh, at the Drug Policy Alliance conference, and I say going crazy because I mean our sessions are running, um, you know, eight a.m. to to sometimes ten p.m. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, and just immersing ourselves in drugs and drug policy, and you know, um, ethyl uh, ethanol was flowing at some points in the evening, but um, but but it was just um. It was just a, a all-encompassing experience from, like, policy to, like, uh, you know, methodology to belief to culture to um, to everything like that. And that was in Washington, D.C., by the way, in case you're listening, from the 18th to the 22nd. Um, in addition, I also did the Federal Policy Day, which I'll talk a little bit about, but... Um, but how you doing, man? You're back home. Uh, how is how is your overall experience at this conference? It was interesting to connect with a large number of people involved in drug education and drug policy. It was also interesting to see the diverse opinions and the sort of groups that are getting involved because I have some concerns about the individuals that seem to be dominating the conversation right now, or at least we're dominating the conversation at the conference. So mm. I really didn't have any clue of the way drug policy and education is moving forward. And you really got to see that there. And there's some definitely positive things and some negative things. So I have, I have mixed feelings. The conference itself was great, but I have mixed feelings about the way everything is headed. Yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed it but also had that sort of overarching experience of of how many facets and angles um it it was interesting watching like you know the weed guys get upset at other weed guys right you had like certain pot guys you know who were like this is the way it should be structured and other people and this is the way it should be structured in yeah. terms of decriminalization um i guess you always have factions and things like that but but um man you know it's definitely not a a coherent moving forward like this is how we do it um it's more of like a a passionate rabble <laughs> you know it's like it's like we're all rallied around you know Ethan Nadelman and and sort of that whole thing and and uh i would say well definitely unification is needed but um so diverse right you know it's it's funny even look on this on the on, on sort of the side of the right you know actually you had remember you had republicans uh republicans for against prohibition and things like that um yeah yeah they were there honestly i never knew they existed but it's yeah. good because it is the case right now that it's mainly liberal groups which is understandable but there oh, is yeah. this conservative and republican argument that is along the same lines and Honestly, because it's where I'm coming from, I don't really want to say conservative or 
Republican, it's libertarian, which is really the middle of the two, but coming from a freedom perspective and a limited government perspective, you probably get further than some of these people who are focused on marijuana or focused on psychedelics or focused on individual drugs for their own reasons. But if you're coming at it from a general, you, people don't have the ability to tell me what to do with my body, then you actually get further really fast because it's such a general application of a principle rather than carefully considering an individual drug and if it's safe or not. So it's a good argument to have, and it's nice that there's an, a group actually putting that argument forward. Well, well, nothing could be more conservative um, than, than, than sort of personal freedom and not having a drug war. I mean, drug war is, is the ultimate in like in like federal like invasive policy i mean it's the exact opposite of conservatives and as a matter of fact you'd even expect lib- a liberal position to be more in a in a sense in favor of uh, of sort of some sort of overarching protect our citizens from themselves you know federal yeah. policy I, I i mean certainly the the republicans if anything are are historically i mean they would be more grounded in that except for um yeah, they seem to uh, pick up certain issues, whether it be uh, you know reproductive rights or personal rights, and really seem to be willing to stick their hands right up your crotch, if uh, or or in your lungs or in your veins or all the other yeah. place they they really kind of are willing to do that. So today, um, we're going to be talking about some of the groups that were there, uh, some of the some of the sort of the notable f- people, uh, just giving an overall experience of this conference. And uh, and we hope uh, if you weren't there, you can you can kind of get our our. And again, I would imagine anybody who went there has a very unique experience. But um, but I wanted to put out what we saw uh, myself as a treatment provider and Seth as as a libertarian and drug education advocate. And uh, boy, that's one thing, you know, Seth. And knowing you, you've never uh, you've never sugarcoated it, man. You've always like, you know, you're you're not the contrarian, but you um, you know, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in the in the rah rah drug policy thing. But uh, but every time I would turn to you, you'd give me sort of a a reasonable um, psychedelics. Apparently, are not going to save the world. I was very upset to hear you say that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, so I'll get started here, uh, and uh, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll go through it. So let's here we go. This is the Addictive Podcast with your host, licensed mental health and addiction counselor Glenn Marshall. Information is crucial. Experience the reality of both legal and illegal drugs from the mouths of those who take them. From the functioning drug user to the recovering addict who nearly lost his life. Understand why certain chemicals do what they do for better and for worse. It's time to get hooked to the The Addictive Podcast. All right, and we're back, and I'm a little jet lagged. <laughs> to, be 
to be honest, I, I'm, I'm sitting here and I realize like, why am I like so sort of drained? It's, uh, it's eight in the morning here. I'm back in Hawaii and, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, uh, I'm trying to wake up. How about you, man? You, you didn't have a, a long trip home. How was it getting out of there? Oh, it was fine. I was lucky. I only had a hour flight, whereas you had to travel across the entire country. Oh, so God. I'm doing a little better. Yeah, I'm like, what day is it? Um, yeah, I guess I'm a day back here or whatever. And uh, but uh, you know, and in addition to the flight, I mean, like we were saying, I mean, the experience was really intense. I mean, more maybe even more intense than I had thought. Um, and and even to start, I wanted to start with talking about uh, Federal Lobby Day and Federal Lobby Day was uh you actually missed that seth uh, next time uh if if we're if we're doing some kind of crazy thing like that um we should check that out but uh federal lobby day was amazing uh it was the highlight of my entire conference and to give you an idea what what happened so i show up at the hotel right and um and you know they have all these leaders there or the drug policy essentially team leaders right so so everybody is holding up their sign for what state uh you're supposed to you know get with right and i see lindsay battaglia who's one of the outstanding people um she she's like my my most favorite person in the whole thing for for the opportunity and the experience she provided but um but i i'm there and i'm expecting to see like four other people, right? I'm expecting to see some international um, people on the team. I'm expecting to see uh, some policy people. There was a, a girl out of uh, Hawaii Pacific University who was supposed to be on the team. So it's supposed to be a number of constituents. So I'm expecting a team of five, right? It turns out that it it's, it's so cool. It winds up being Lindsay and myself, on federal lobby day the two of us and she's the director of of um you know of of sort of the bills and what's going through now and what's the priority and all that and we wind up going and meeting with um representative takai's uh staff we wind up meeting with uh, uh Br senator brian schatz's staff but the highlight of my existence on this trip was was uh, myself, Lindsay, uh, and then meeting with um, with uh, Cody uh, Hata, or I think her name is Cody Hata. I might be getting that wrong, but sort of the the lead staffer, uh, Representative Maisie Hirono or Senator Hirono, and then Senator Hirono coming in and us sitting down, like like fully face to face and you know they all think i'm coming in there with with um you know talking marijuana right they think they think i'm going to be pushing those bills and i am pushing those bills but um but for vastly different reasons and and so to give you an idea i took the approach of two amazing studies right i find one study as cannabis is a neuroprotectant for methamphetamine on the brain Right. Incredible out of uh, I believe that one was out of Japan. And then another study which talks about cannabis as a relapse prevention agent uh, for methamphetamine, which is also true. So so literally you have this drug here in, in marijuana or cannabis, I should say, that um, that has actually very beneficial effects to methamphetamine. And in Hawaii, we have this real methamphetamine problem. So what I, I sort of was able to sidestep the, you know, sort of pro-pop position and take it from a pro-pop position to us needing more research in regards to 
um, you know, getting it to be Schedule 2 and uh, being able to follow up on these things. I mean, Senator Hirono was so sharp, Seth. The first thing she says to me when I present these studies is, have these been reproduced, you know? And for and for a politician to just kick that out like that and be so um, so on it to to just well at least it suggests she understands the process and what is required for this to actually result in change, which a lot of them probably would not have any oh, clue yeah. how well, science was, actually works. Yeah, I met so Mika Morse. Uh, she was the representative for um, Brian Schatz, and and man, you know when you get into Congress and stuff like that in the Senate. These are some sharp folks, man. I mean, they're sort of like attorneys or attorneys in training. And uh, but it was just it meant so much to me to kind of go see your, you know, see my representatives go into their offices. Uh, you know, it's local people there. So that's so cool. So I'm immediately like, you know, aloha. You know, how's it going? And uh, and you feel the connection and their offices, you know, they have nice like Hawaiian art in there and things like that. And it um and it and it, if I could say anything about that, um, if, in addition to it being a, a wonderful experience for me and me getting the points across and look at looking at like sentencing reform, um, anybody can really do that, Seth. Um, you know, you'd think like, how could I go meet with my senator? How could I go meet with my House of Representatives? Well, it's really simple to do. I mean, you just kind of make an appointment, and you may get a staffer, or you may get the actual senator, or or house, or you know, or or representative. But but um, if anything, for the people listening out there, you know, it 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 made me feel like you know my my representatives are so accessible. I mean, you really just have to you know make a make an appointment and show up, like a yeah. haircut, you know. So. Yeah, so that that was uh, that was really special, and I got a picture with Senator Hirono, and um, I, I mean, she understood uh, the you know the the importance of of looking at cannabis as as you know a lot of times they you know they'll tell, call you know cannabis is a slippery slope to other drugs. It's all BS for a number of reasons, not to mention you know risk and all that. But um, but it was really cool to look at cannabis as like this terminal drug in terms of like uh like a a drug that people will use and typically aren't going on to other drugs right i guess alcohols and you know all drugs are maybe sort of in that in that boat where you sort of hit your drug of choice or whatever and that's where you stay but to be able to look at cannabis from this perspective as a as a replacement as a relapse prevention agent and as a neuroprotectant for methamphetamine that w- that was um that was really cool. So I got to feel like a little scientist. So anyway. Well, so, adding to that, yeah. it's not related to the lobby day, but the research, which I was sharing online yesterday, was showing recently that the same concept applies to heroin, that it seemed using marijuana when coming off of heroin can greatly increase one's ability to fully make it through withdrawal and then stay off of heroin simply because it makes dealing with those symptoms and those effects of withdrawal that much easier. Yeah. Plus there's it's it's possible that heroin has something to do with the the cannabinoid system as well, but even if it doesn't, just using marijuana affects so many of the things that make withdrawal difficult that it can really encourage people to keep going. Unfortunately, that's not a normal treatment method. No. 
And and that is so cool, Seth. I mean, that is just the coolest thing, right? You're, you know, we talk about cannabis. We're talking about uh, a generally, you know, mild, euphoric, mild relaxant. Uh, and the idea of this being like, hey, you know, I'm a I'm a hardcore user of maybe one of these more more harder drugs, and yet I can sort of, if anything, sort of <clears throat> fall back to the position of of uh you know i'm going to be a you know hey i'm 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 going to smoke pot uh and, and again it's interesting you know we always glorify sort of the drug free position but a lot of a lot of individuals don't want to be drug free um it feels good to use drugs it feels good to block pain with drugs and the idea of cannabis which is which is generally benign to the body and here i'm not only benign but but a protectant um, and, and and sort of being able to offer that up as a treatment, um, that that's really exciting. And again, we get into well, you know, person maybe being addicted or still addicted. But of course, I would argue that you know what the f is that, and we'll we'll talk about that a little more when we get to uh, you know our our disease concept and National Institute of Drug Abuse uh, people who were there and things like that. But but right away, I mean, this idea of cannabis as a therapy. You know, um, that's new. That's exciting. Uh, it's worthwhile to think about. It's worthwhile to research. And um, I, I'm great we can offer something uh, potentially to people in the future uh, as opposed to just forcing the, you know, abstinence-only model on them. I, you, Seth, you know, I don't know this, but I wonder how 12-step handles like you know the the uh the, the uh how does a how does a, how do they deal with like a pot smoker in the rooms of 12 step is it is it always a drug is a drug is a drugs and you're still an addict and i mean they don't really freak out on cigarettes and and coffee um how do they feel about something that's actually even more helpful and <laughs> less intoxicating than either of those substances i wonder as far as i'm aware especially the normal treatment methods or 12-step just treat it like alcohol they just assume that you need to get off completely go through 12 steps and then remain abstinent so but like you said they are perfectly fine with things like cigarettes for the most part or caffeine so it's kind of an interesting position well it's a it's an unfortunate one because um you know the idea of replacement therapy that's one of the things that you know that we do as as therapists even is you're always looking at replacements replacements for thinking replacements for feeling replacements for uh you know behavior and then finding healthier replacements and uh yeah so cannabis right off the bat being one of them it seems like the representatives that I met with were hearing that and seeing that it's in the literature um so so yeah that was that was kind of the great part um at least to to that thing so getting into the main main part of the conference, and I have a, I have a bunch of groups written down here, Seth, but why don't you sort of start us off with, with what, was, what was sort of the outstanding parts on that first day or, or something that you really want to uh, talk about? Well, I believe we started with the youth drug prevention, if I remember correctly, and some of that information was good, actually. On the first day and then on one of the other days when they were talking about young people using drugs as well, it was really nice to see this uniform opinion that they can't be harshly punished, thrown in treatment, 
and dealt with as though the only option for them to use drugs safely safely or to just not use drugs is, is like this weird punishment model of it's the worst thing a child could be doing at 15 years old is smoking marijuana or even using a harder drug. So it was nice to see that there are these alternative opinions that it's more about getting them to use safely and understanding the drugs and what they do and having an open dialogue between parents and potentially therapists or teachers and the kids because that's totally different than what you normally see, whether it's in schools or in households. And so that was probably one of the few areas during the entire conference where people had a pretty single opinion on the way that things need yeah. to change, which was nice, which was nice. And on the first day, there's also, it wasn't a positive note, but that whole drug war militarization panel was totally screwed up in a number of ways. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Well, the the idea uh, that definitely was an overarching theme, education, right? Mm -hmm. Education and empowerment, not only to the individual, but even to, like you're saying, the family, to the user, the the adolescent user, the experimenter, um, definitely empowerment with with them having the right information under, you know, delineating out between abuse and use. Uh, looking at, you know, not looking at the concept of legality as the determining factor for drug safety. Um, those are all critical. And, you know, I was going to talk about this at the end, but the uh, Marsha Rosenbaum safety first. Um, I have found my calling in this conference, Seth, in terms of uh, taking that educational model, moving forward into primary prevention. It's really great because especially as I, I sort of move here and, and, and look at the D.C. thing or Hawaii thing, um, you, can, you can kind of package that up and then begin educating, um, educating folks like that. And, and I got to tell you, Seth, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit disheartened, man. You know, it, it's kind of nice going there and wanting to change the world. But uh, but Seth, I don't want to fight that battle, man. I, I don't want to fight the, the the drug war battle. Um, that it's was a difficult one, and and it's interesting when you go to a conference like this because you are suddenly surrounded by a bunch of people with the same general opinion. But even with this being an international event, there's fourteen and fifteen hundred people, which is great. But when you apply that to the real world, you're you're talking about the majority still having totally different opinions, and it's yeah. a really big really big fight especially when you're talking about kids and how they should be treated or talking about treatment in general i mean even at the conference it was amazing to see the infighting when it came to something like treatment so you apply it to the, yeah. the real world and it's a difficult battle to be in yeah i i'm not that tough man i um i i don't want to take on policy i mean federal lobby day was great but, I mean, you can just see that the souls that have ground themselves down, <laughs> you know, fighting this. I mean, you know, and they're, they're – it's interesting. That's kind of what I was uh, – one of the things that I, I was saying before is like, you know, I didn't see much people at the micro level who are necessarily dealing directly with a addiction or drugs and things like that. But a lot of the people at the macro level – and I guess you can't do it both, right? I mean, maybe you can – um, I, as a treatment provider, I guess I can kind of be an advocacy in terms of, you know, policy, and I don't want my clients carrying arrest records to to the end of their life for yeah. for some experience they had. 
but um but but the idea of of pushing for bills and fighting for you know fighting for marijuana rescheduling or all that shit i realized you know i realized from this conference that that's not my not what i want to do um my place is in treatment my place is in in education and prevention and i get all lit up when i can be the guy who delivers like new information, safe information, just like what this podcast is, right? I mean, it was drug education evolve. That's our motto, and um, so so I had found my place in terms of the youth education thing, and and yeah, we were both at that one, and we were at the uh, train the trainer safety first model, and I really look forward to like implementing that statewide if I can, um, you know, because then I don't have to go fight. All like the, uh, you know, I don't, I, honestly, policy is secondary. If I, you know, one of the things that also stood out to me in this conference is families, you know, families are the ones really left behind uh, in the drug war, right? They're, they're, they're told to turn to treatment. They're told to, uh, you know, your kid's got to get off this. You know, they look at the kid like, kid, what do you, and I say kid, I, you know, I just sort of, I'm sorry for framing it up like that. It's just sort of my reference and things like that, but. You know, the families suffer the most. And um, and so if I can go help those families in terms of the education piece, um, yeah, that, that felt the least contentious and it felt the best to me. So anyway, around that around that youth piece, I just wanted to uh, to bring that up. So. And there was this big overarching theme from many panels of the legalization versus decriminalization and you really had this conference seemingly either split down the middle or, well, it's hard to tell because there's definitely some people who only want to legalize marijuana and they don't care at all about the other drugs. So you kind of have to put those people to the side because I really don't understand their position. When it comes to the people that want to do something about all drugs, you do have this split view. And it was interesting to see the people that were arguing for decriminalization because I'm pretty sure every argument they brought up doesn't actually make any sense. And I believe it was this youth panel. It was either this one or another one related to kids yeah. where there was this opinion put forth that decriminalization would be a good policy step because it wouldn't have an effect, unlike, unlike legalization, on kids using drugs, which is a remarkably strange viewpoint. And when it comes to harm reduction, the drugs that really need to be legalized are the dangerous ones right the you know it, it, it's it's amazing how you still have and, and i think that was the uh wasn't that the uh the school new york schools person who was saying that I mainly so. yeah I, it's funny how how people perceive it um, and again, getting back to uh, Rayford Davis from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, the, the greatest – I love his line about, you know, prohibition is not the epitome of control. It's the absence of all control. And uh, and, and as opposed to like, like literally if you if – you, well, if you legalized heroin, then, then you're going to see this massive uptick in heroin or cocaine or any of these drugs. And, and you just don't see that. You know, people who use seem to use and people who don't, don't. But you still have people who, you know, they think they're being cautious in that sense. Um, but, you know, decriminalization, you still have 
Um, I, I mean, by a decriminalized model, you still have drugs in the, being manufactured by drug dealers. Isn't wouldn't that isn't that fit? Isn't that correct? Well, that and that's where it comes into this point I just made of of the hard drugs, the the potentially dangerous drugs, are the ones that you really need to legalize because. If you're talking about impure substances, things right. like heroin or methamphetamine are some of the worst. They're notoriously impure, and that causes a lot of the harms. So you do n almost nothing about that by having decriminalization. So if you truly care about helping people, yeah. you don't need to be worrying that legalization is going to suddenly result in half the population shooting heroin. It's just a silly viewpoint, and there's nothing to suggest that's the case. But what we do know is true, that if you were buying heroin from a store it would be safer than buying it from a drug dealer. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, th the feel of the conference is primarily like, like personal rights, you know? I mean, wouldn't you say that's, that's the, you know, like Ethan Nadelman said in, in one of his speeches was like, you know, fundamentally, the, you know, the, the, the war against the war on drugs is a war for justice, you know, and, and sort of, and and those sorts of themes. So you hear privacy. I got the feeling, in terms of the people I met, and and again, I don't mean to sort of reduce it to this. And and there's a lot of folks who don't fit in this. I should also say, but but it's almost like we want to use drugs. To, you know, we don't want to be fucked with. Again, this is this is. I I, I just that's not everybody, but I, I sort of got a strong sense of 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 that personal and I'm not taking anything away from that position or anything like that but like the, the you know it's sort of it the injustice of it versus the you know the other aspects of drugs whether that be psychological you know psychic expansion or whether that be addiction or it was mostly about like personal freedom was it was that your experience or not so much am i being too reductionistic there it wasn't really my experience i think that's probably one of the best arguments you can make but as far as i'm aware with the way that most of these people were speaking it it wasn't connected to personal freedom because the majority of these people i, I definitely don't think it'd be accurate to say that even 50 percent have the view that all drugs should be legal so if yeah, you don't have true. that view then it's hard to make the the freedom argument, so that means that they are coming from X drug is safe or you know harm reduction measures or whatever, which are all great, and I make those arguments as well, but then you yeah. need to have this overarching argument about freedom that most of these people actually don't make or else or maybe they are suggesting it, but they're not actually implementing mm -hmm. it with their policy proposals. So yeah, yeah I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's really how most people felt. I guess it was foreign to me a little bit because, you know, I'm actually very limited in my view. You know, my whole view is, and and I express this to a number of people there, is like, you know, you guys are in a social justice. Well, that's great. Well, I just don't want my clients dying. You know, like that's, yeah. that's my only. And so I'm coming from sort of this treatment perspective. I'd almost be like. Like, you know, I, I get that you all give a shit about this and this is really important. Um, I have just sort of one goal and that's like, well, if you do this, then my clients are served better. Um, you know, very simple and all that. Um, you know, my personal drug use doesn't really get swayed one way or the other if this is decriminalized or legalized or anything. Um, but I hate my clients having to deal with the criminal justice system and, and the impairment that causes to them. 
uh, whether it be their job or their housing or, or all of the or their all of all of the of all of the things that come with that. Not only that, but of course it 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 leaves things like maintenance therapies or heroin maintenance therapies and methadone maintenance therapies and any kind of maintenance therapies out in the wind. Um, and a lot of times inaccessible because of, you know, the abstinence model being this, you know, the, the pure form of, of heavenly, uh, you know, heavenly, uh, ascension that you can, that you can achieve. But most, you know, a lot, or a lot of people are, are just not living that life or they're having a drink on the, in the evenings or a coffee in the mornings or any of the myriad of substances that they put in their body. So, so I guess coming from treatment myself, it was, it was different for me because usually the folks that I'm dealing with and feel this way are, are people who have had this this macro experience, you know, one-on-one drug user, drug abuser, and then, you know, feelings get shaped. But a lot of these folks are, are sort of in these overarching macro type positions of social justice and things like that. You know, like one time, you know, we talked to one guy and he's like, well, I was into uh, you know helping homeless, and now I've switched over into drug policy, and 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 I was like, you know, why why the hell would you want to do that? I mean, like like uh, I I don't know. So I guess I guess fundamentally, people are are better than me. I mean, <laughs> in terms of you know they they want to do good things, and so they find a cause and they do it. Um, boy, this is some kind of cause to pick up, but but yeah, I guess people can sort of shift through different causes and um you know I, this is a popular one at the moment um but that's kind of interesting i thought you know like you can just sort of replay like you can f- like in your purpose and your mission in life you can be like okay well i'm for drug policy okay now i'm for homeless advocacy and now i'm for yeah. you know uh reproductive rights and you can sort of just you can i didn't know you could just swap that shit out <laughs> i mean that was kind of that was kind of interesting for me to see that i thought well, so. it all depends on where people are coming from. You know, like I said, what would be nice, in my opinion, is if some of these people just started to come from the same viewpoint. I mean, you have this entire group of people at the conference who are focused on just treating addiction with or dealing with addiction with things like replacement therapies. And then you have all these people that are dealing with, uh, you know, how messed up the police have become as a result of prohibition. And you have all these different areas that the only thing connecting them right now is that they all have something to do with drugs. But if you were yeah. to connect those and be just realize that just the freedom argument, that one single argument fixes the problems that all of you different mm-hmm. groups are talking about. Because if you have the freedom argument and that gets implemented into policy, then you suddenly don't have any questions about different therapies or police abusing the population or anything like that they they, all those problems are immediately addressed with one argument instead of 10 and you have a much larger group of people unfortunately very few people are working together in that way well that was what that one advocate who was on the panel for beyond marijuana legalization was saying um she was one of the ones who is uh you know a part of that group that uh that i guess either they sued or they they brought the argument to the Mexican Supreme Court, and the Mexican Supreme Court found that that the harms as a result of not allowing the personal freedom for the use of cannabis was significant enough that that it was unjust. 
um, you know, that, that the law was unjust, that the criminalization of cannabis was unjust as a result of the impingement on personal freedom and privacy, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that argument either. I worry about using the freedom argument in that way because if you leave it up to a small group of people working for the government to decide, is, are the problems caused by prohibition greater, so great that they're infringing on freedom in such a way that that's the reason why we should um, we should have legal access to mm -hmm. a drug, um, but also taking into consideration the harms you know brought by legalization. Because if you do that for all the different drugs, it may work for marijuana, but you end up in situations where, depending on the group of people trying to analyze the situation for the government, you could easily see suddenly that the freedom argument isn't big enough for something like heroin because mm. they would come up with a laundry list of negatives associated with legalization, regardless mm. of if those actually would play out in the real world. So I think the freedom one just has to be a a trump card. I mean, if you, if you knew that by legalizing a certain drug, a million new people would use it, you, you still have to be for legalization because it needs to be that big of a of a argument that it, it essentially beats any other. Because if you go point by point, the safety and the effects of the prohibition of that specific drug and the access to treatment, all these different things or addiction you might end up with bad policies. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's hard because a lot of these things work for marijuana, but they don't work as well for the drugs we all tend to perceive as more dangerous. So, yeah, well, it was interesting. I mean, the, the fact that the Mexican Supreme Court, you know, made that ruling and things like that. Um, yeah, it, it's just very interesting to see how how different folks, you know, in their policy approaches um, you know, I got to meet a gentleman who is actually had even was one of the guys who back in the day, like was was one of the sculptor of man, mandatory minimum sentencing and yeah. uh, and then credits that or, or like sees that as like his greatest failure, obviously. I mean, and now he's I like, a, so. yeah, oh, of course. And now he's like a staunch, uh, you know, a staunch decriminalizing guy uh, or even legalizing guy. And um I mean, I mean, again, you know, you can picture you can picture some of these same people, right? These same attorneys who have been working even in D.C. a long time, civil rights guys and things like that. You know, they're, they're going through a period and it shows you like government invasion in terms of, you know, the, the person. Right. Or the state's invasion. Right. And, um, you know, back in the day, these, you know, even African-Americans like in the 80s with the crack thing, you know, they're. Everybody was rallying around like tougher sentencing and make it harsher and and go after those guys. And and, th and this guy, civil rights attorney, um, that was his position as well. He helped architect that. And um, and now you see, well, it's a different time now. now oh, hey, everybody, that was a bad idea. Now we shouldn't do that anymore. And it's like, fuck, bro, no consequence. Like you can make these disastrous policies and 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 I appreciate like you know he's like working on you know undoing it now, but man, I mean, what a catastrophe the war on drugs has been, and um, you know, God, what else do they get wrong? You know, it's well, it's you, hard not to hold the people that had these policies implemented in the first place or proposed them responsible for <sighs> the outcomes. 
So when you have things that truly ruin people's lives, it's pretty hard to then accept, just view their apology as them changing their position and then it's done. Well, it's really hard because something like mandatory minimums affected so many people or in the case of of, uh, Joe Biden with the Rave Act, uh, making using sort of party drugs far more dangerous. Well, then all the deaths associated with festivals and using drugs, it's really hard not to connect that to an individual or a group of politicians because they're the ones that wanted this to be the case and they they implemented it. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to view these people in in a totally positive light even when they change their view. Yeah. And, and that's one of the thing is, you know, a lot of them are very smart and and they're very, you know, headstrong and they march through these things like like they know what's up. Um, yeah. You know, and, and they did that, you know, like this gentleman I'm thinking of, he did that prior and, and now regrets it and understands it. But but I mean, you get a lot of power, man. If you're sculpting some national policy. I mean that's a fucking lot of power. I I, I mean it's a uh, you know I can see why our founding fathers were into the checks and balances thing because well and in this case it totally didn't work and the drug war screwed you know screwed pretty much everybody um particularly families of color and things like that but but it's amazing just how power and, and again you know there's a lot of egos in this um you know if you if you're a highfalutin D.C. attorney. Uh, you're, you know, you, you sort of get off on being able to kick ass and take names and make, and make policies and move things forward. Uh, things can even take a momentum and and obviously get beyond. I mean, once, once something is like drafted, it's so hard to like roll it back, you know, or, or, or change it. Um, so, well, I mean, this guy, again, he's actively trying to do that, but, uh, well, mandatory minimums, like how many folks are still serving those, you know, 30 years for whatever crack or some bullshit like that. And it's a not only is it insane to have mandatory minimums for drug offenses, but it's probably the most insane thing you could do for any offense. Why would you ever determine a sentence before dealing with the individual that committed the crime? I mean, the entire judicial system should be based around the threat that people pose to society, which in the case of drugs means that these people really shouldn't be ever in jail. But even in other crimes, why would you determine that in every situation X crime should result in a at least a 40-year sentence? That's just a that's just yeah. a weird thing to do. And that's why you've seen judges, people that actually deal with the sentencing, actually oppose in many cases these these mandatory minimums because suddenly their discretion to do what they think is right disappears and the government just takes over and applies a single rule to every offense. And you can't possibly do that. I've always been a big fan of behavioral measures. So for example, uh, if you were to ask me how DUI should be treated, I would definitely have some sort of safety thing on DUI. I, I don't even know if I necessarily that would result in like criminal sanctions, but make no mistake. I mean, and maybe it's after the fact. If you fucking kill somebody as a result of drinking or driving or, or have some issue for that, 
I mean, if it, in my in my perfect world, you're going away for 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 murder. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I, so well, so I'm always when it in comes those situations, to, we yeah. need to look at the facts. And somebody can be, they can go to jail for murdering somebody because it's entirely acceptable and understandable. But we then need to consider what these people are going to do in the future. Yeah. And unlike a truly messed up person who made the decision over a week or two or a month to make to kill somebody and take their life and figured out how to do it versus somebody who happened to be drinking and then ran somebody over we need to realize that the the latter situation is is less dangerous in the future so yeah. these people probably shouldn't go to jail for the same amount of time um Unless you're purely focused on punishment, which I don't think is the best idea either. Right. So, but like you know, drug it, drug behavior, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. People are like, oh, he's, you know, drug behavior. I, I I don't I don't give a shit what you know. The second somebody harms somebody else, it's and again, we're talking the rarest incidents of crime when you talk, except for alcohol, right? I mean, alcohol. Uh, shit. I mean, isn't it funny in in that sense? It's like a bar fight breaks out on the street. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, hey, that's just, you know, the that's just a tussle. You know, it's like, yeah. it's all good. That's what you do when you're drunk. And I, I mean, can you imagine any other any other kind of drug or or thing that you know? Imagine if every time you came out of the movies, there was like a fight. You know, they'd be really they'd be looking really hard at like, you know, like what are we doing about movie theaters and and things like that? But because exactly. it's alcohol, it gets kind of this pass. Um, and I don't think it should ever, I think, I think a person's behavior, I mean, even addiction, right? Like I, I don't really, you know, give a shit as much if you're, you know, if you're, if you have addiction or you're experiencing addiction and your behavior is causing harm to others, well, I don't fucking care if you're an addict, dude. I, you know, that's secondary to your harms to society, you know? Um, so, so I'm always wanting to just kick ass and take names on, on any kind of behavior, um, and, and, and never excuse the behavior. I mean, also the behavior is the one measure you have for really how impacting the drug use or, 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 or maybe something else really is, you know what I mean? So, yeah. So, so the idea of, uh, of, of even how we give some drugs a pass yet, you know, we'll say, oh, well, it w- wasn't a big deal or, or whatever. They were just, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if, if you, if you drop a cigarette in your lap while you're smoking and that distracts you, um, I, I, I think you should, you know, experience whatever consequence and punishments and, I think we all need to be responsible for ourselves as much as we can be. And if your addiction is impairing your ability to do that to the point where you are harming others, um, dude, I, I, I don't really have sympathy. I, I, I think the society takes the greater, you know, the greater position on there or, or gets or they get the protection ahead of you. Um, for that matter, I, you know, may, maybe not even treatment. Maybe it is something like incarceration or, or whatever. But like, um, yeah, if, if someone's an alcoholic and they're continuing to drive all the time or, or whatever, and they, you know, I don't know, I just, I just, I just really don't give a pass for drugs, uh, for drug use, uh, especially if it manifests manifests itself in in some sort of harm to others. Well, so. that this is 
sort of just wrapping that point up, I mean, this is an argument that I often make is that you don't need to have a drug be illegal, the mere use of a drug or the selling of a drug to be illegal to deal with any possible crimes associated with the drug because you already have laws associated with hurting people, stealing from people, doing all a laundry list of things. So why would you need to make the mere use of it illegal because most people using it don't do the other crimes right so, it's um, it's like hate crimes and like hate because, crime legislation in that respect yeah. yeah which yeah that that seems to be rather screwy too i mean it should you know all all in in that sense i mean all kind of crimes that are whatever whatever you do man you don't you, you know excuses excuses that's uh it, it, it's what you do that matters. You know, it's the actions that count. I don't, I don't yeah. necessarily give a shit about your intentions. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if you're some person who's just a, a fucking DUI and all over the place or whatever, and you're screaming to me about treatment, um, I might just assume keep you in jail from, from just a pure safety perspective or disable your car. Right. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I mean, any of those things, um, at the same token, you look at like uh, quote unquote drugged driving on cannabis, and you know they do, you know the National Highway Trans- you know Safety Administration does a study. You know most people when they're driving, they seem now if they're combining alcohol and and marijuana, there's certainly uh, you know some synergistic effects there. But but generally the marijuana driver is rather like you know overly cautious if anything in there you know so the idea of drug driving i don't give a shit about drug driving i give a shit about how that person is driving you know well this is the argument against having duis be a crime the only because generally it involves an inherent breach on freedom because you can't you're not going to get say a dui um conviction Unless somebody was doing something else wrong because you you pulled them over because they were actually driving in a in a bad way. Well, what um, about a DUI stop though? That's that's the thing. That's where you infringe on freedom because then you're just infringing on people's ability to move, and that's a fundamental issue. So you probably shouldn't have laws regarding the mere uh, the mere presence of a drug in your body. It should be based upon what you're doing as a result of. That drug. So if you are literally driving in the other lane, yes, that's a problem. Yeah. And that's when you're pulled over. In any other case, if you're just driving normal but you're pulled over just to have your breath tested, well, that seems absurd. Yeah. I, I think that's how I feel too, actually. You know? And in the and... case of and in the case of marijuana, it's really insidious right now because those tests could be positive for so many people, even though they really are not impaired. Yeah. So well, that was one thing that also came up in the confer- conference that was very interesting. You know, we, we talk about, you know, the, the repeal of drug laws and, you know, going back to a better time in, you know, 1910. And they, and they talked about, um, you know, what is the result of this? And what was very interesting is you still see, even when you, like, repeal drug laws, I mean, you do see arrests drop and all that, but then you see sort of this uptick in other like like fuck with people behavior. So you see, uh, you know, open containers being busted more, right? Yeah, uh, that was a, that was fascinating. So the idea of 
of uh, Ethan Nadelman even brought that up, I think, on the Beyond Marijuana Legalization panel. Um, that was very interesting to see that even when you when you roll back things on certain drug laws, that sort of the cops are still like, well, I got to make my my case for my existence. Well, so, that's the thing. And that, that's yeah. why I'll keep coming back to the this fundamental argument that all these people could be using because I'm sorry, but there is nothing inherently wrong because you aren't hurting anybody else with a open container. This is just this is just silly. I mean, this is a, a totally arbitrary law that has no connection to the reality of harm, and therefore it simply should not exist. Whereas any case where somebody's really being harmed, which is very minimal, this is a this is a thing that I was actually thinking about recently, um, largely provoked by a blog post I put up, plus the panel where some people were saying that the police shouldn't even exist, which was a very strange argument. But I was thinking about the fact that if you get rid of truly victimless crimes and take every single one off the books, you kind of remove most of the patrolling that police do because you no longer need them to merely be going around and looking for crimes because the crimes that then they're focused on, things like murders, they're called to the scene. They're not just looking around to happen to see somebody shooting somebody else this is absurd no when they're driving around they're looking for prostitutes they're looking for absurd you know violations of of very tiny laws or they're looking for drugs and things like that that allows the police to harass people if you only have them focus on murder rape assault all these different things none of which involve patrolling well then you just you just you know liberated an entire group of people from the authoritarian presence of law enforcement in the community so again another big thing you can do with a simple rule if there's not another external victim there isn't a crime yeah i i and and i would i would sort of pull back a little bit in terms of secure you know making sure roads are secure like if somebody is reckless driving right there's a preventative you know position there um, yeah. But but I totally see what you're saying, and just in general, um, no harm, no foul. I mean, it, it's almost like that. And, and, but and again, I mean, certain things, you know, you could have crime prevention, you know, robbery prevention, all of those things being valid. You you certainly could have that. Um, but yeah, the world becomes a a much more simpler place when you don't have people reaching into other people's pockets. I mean, quite literally, right? I mean, that's what it is. Reaching into their pockets, reaching into their person, reaching into their cars, reaching into their houses. I, th- I, th- I think that was uh, one of the Leap guys was saying. It might have even been Neil Fra- uh, Franklin or whatever who was really talking about that. Just, you know, think about that. I mean, reaching into, in, into pockets. What's in your pockets? Like for, you know, you're not committing a crime, but yet that's sort of the behavior that manifests is the cop's frisking and shaking down and making a case for going into your car right checking out your car what's in the car making a case for going into your house making a case for going into your bank account making you know that's that's some real fucking invasive behavior man you know it is and i don't really see any legitimate crime that you are going to deal with by stopping a bunch of people walking around and searching their pockets there's there's literally no real crime that I can think of where 
you would be doing that as a general policing measure. Whereas right now, there are reasons to do that. And as a result, you have a bunch of people in communities that absolutely hate the police for totally legitimate reasons because they're being stopped. And when you hear some 17-year-old black kid in, in the inner city somewhere talking about having been stopped a dozen times in the past year, well, this is, this is absurd because every single one of those times was just so that the police could harass them to see if maybe they had a little bit of drugs. If they do have a little bit of drugs on them, they're not even selling. They're literally just using drugs and transporting them in their, their possession. Then suddenly they have a record. And for somebody in that community, that's even worse. So you have this, this just spiraling out of control place for law enforcement that does not have to exist. Yeah. Unfortunately, the response that we don't need police at all is a truly insane one. I don't know where they're coming from uh, or how you get to that view. You could just be saying victimless crimes aren't crimes, which would be a great step. Right. And and speaking of law enforcement, I mean, I guess that brings me to, to one of the first groups to mention here, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, who I've interviewed on the podcast, uh, one of their speakers. Um, oh man, what a, what a group you, I mean, when, when, when Neil Franklin is on the stage, he's a, you know, he was like a chief of police or whatever. I think he's one of their directors or board guys, you know, he's, he starts breaking down, right? And you can, I think you can hear this on, on the uh, Beyond Marijuana Legalization. Uh, I, I stream that. I, you can hear that on the, on one of the tracks prior to this one on the podcast, but when he starts breaking down about he's talking about how many, you know, how many kids have experienced exactly what you've experienced and how they don't have a chance. You know, they don't have a hope once they're hooked in and once that record drops on them. Um, I mean, that's the end. That's that's almost the end for 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 so many opportunities for um you know, for 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 all sorts of things, welfare, college loans. I mean, it just destroys them. And watching watching the cops at this place, you know, cry quite literally cry. And uh, I, I met with uh, one of their uh, board people too, Diane uh, Goldstein, who I had been um, talking to a little bit. Uh, she was, a, I think, a lieutenant or or a captain or one of these guys. I mean, these cops are so on it. In terms yeah. of seeing this, and they, and 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 the risk they take, you know. I, again, I've talked about that with Rayford on Law Enforcement Against Prohibition uh, podcast, but but they they're so beautiful, man. I I just love those guys so much. I and um, I mean they they really meant a lot. And uh, did you you got a chance to meet some of the Leap folks as well, Seth? Yeah, I spoke with Diane and. Uh, mess on the others yeah i mean it's it's a great group because sort of like the the various groups of uh of soldiers who are against various wars which are really powerful positions because you have people that were the perpetrators not even the victims of a perceived injustice that's one of the best places to come from in the war on drugs are these police officers who had a change of heart and realized that what they did for a good portion of their lives was wrong. So you have these really great arguments uh, coming from these individuals. 
Yeah, I um another uh, another group I want to also bring up, and and this is interesting because you can look at this almost like primary prevention, or you know, or primary, secondary, and tertiary. Um, so you have the law enforcement guys. What did you think of? And what a huge group! What did you think of students for sensible drug policy? What did you think of those guys? Oh, it's great. I mean, they're more of a general drug policy reform group. They have so many different positions that they're they're advocating for. But the education side that I heard a lot of them talk about was really great because they're not talking as much about arrests. They're really talking about a lot of harm reduction stuff. Mm-hmm. And because obviously that's really important on colleges and in, in, in colleges and in high schools. And it's great. I mean, the it's it's awesome that you have this entire generation of people that are growing up going to college and most big colleges have this organization this student organization that realizes the drug laws are totally screwed up in their current form so they have a lot of great positions as well do you know um well i met uh two two individuals actually and it's funny they're both out of the same chapter uh carolyn naughton uh, who's like uh, studying to be a neuroscientist or something, and Francis Fu, who yep. I actually had the chance to sit down after the youth policy thing because I'm looking for I need a nice peer I need a uh, a peer advocacy piece, um, but they're all out of a Northwestern University of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and they were fucking so sharp. <laughs> they was yeah. so impressed. I mean. Uh, Francis, right? Uh, you know, because one of the one of the questions that came up in in one of the the meetings or one of the breakouts was, you know, you had this girl in the back, and she was a had been an opiate user, and one of the things she wanted to do was be able to access her parents and be able to be open and say, look, I'm having this problem. And when you look at treatment and things like that, it's always this top down. Like we never assume the, you know, the person who's experiencing addiction can help themselves, right? Where it's always like you need to reach down and grab them and pull them out and whatever. Well, not for this kid. This kid was like, man, I really wanted to be able to access my parents. I didn't have a way to do that or feel like I had the skills to do that. And the first thing I thought of was advocacy. Like, what you know, you can get an advocacy in domestic, an advocate in domestic violence. You can get an av- advocate in all sorts of things like that. But there's no real advocate for a drug user to say, hey, um, you know, let me align with this advocate that's going to help assist me through the process in regards to accessing my parents. And so I pulled Francis aside and I was like, look, you know, that's that's a critical piece, man, the advocacy piece. The only thing that I was bummed about Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and I'm sure they're – God, I mean they were just – they're a big group and they really think about this stuff a lot, was that um, you know they're all college level. Right. So so there, you know, I need as a treatment component and doing primary prevention, I need a high school level. So I was thinking of maybe talking to them about like, could their members even have like an adopt the high school thing? Right. You, you see what I'm saying? So like if yeah. I'm if I'm an SSDP, could I then reach, you know, say, okay, I'm going to take this high school on. I'm going to meet with leaders of this high school and sort of form this this peer advocacy or peer support or whatever. Because now the college level is great and the policy stuff is great. 
but I need that piece where I can have kids in high school accessing other peers with sensible information, not just freak out abstinence and not just freak out, hey, let's go use, but someone who's balanced, someone who understands things, someone who can take the next step towards whatever that person is is hope, is wanting or needing. Um, so that was that was the thing about that. Do you, do you have anything else to add on the SSDP guys in regard to that? No, I'd say that the biggest issue with expanding into high schools, because I do think that if you are going to do education, it should be in high schools because that's when the majority of drug use begins, not in college, at least for many people. Yeah. And that's important. The problem is with the current laws, it's very difficult to do anything different in schools other than the current approach. I mean, if you encountered a student that has drugs you can't there's really no flexibility there if you are inviting people in to talk in a different way about drugs and not have sort of a sort of prevention as their main focus there'd be a lot of arguments against that from the local community so it becomes a lot more difficult than dealing with 19 20 21 year olds grouping together at a college to discuss these things yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. So it's one of those cases where I'm not sure how much you can really do with the current laws. Eventually, it'd be awesome if you had exactly what you're talking about, good drug education, advocacy for students, for kids in these yeah. schools. It's just I feel like it's going to be really difficult right now. Like like almost a, what I'm almost talking about is almost like a, a partner in your experimentation you know, not not to say you're using with the person, but at least and actually Francis was real cool and being like, hey, you know, if anybody's experiencing that, she covers Hawaii as well as as like her region. But if anybody's experiencing that, being able to simply reach out, right? Uh, you're not going to get a a no drugs are bad. You're not going to get a no oh drugs are good. You're going to get a objective experience. You're going to get a, a look at the pattern. I mean, wouldn't it be cool, you know? And again, this is this whole model of the safety first prevention program is about you know maintaining the relationships between parents and their children during experimentation. You know, not having the parent, you know you know, sure, don't use drugs. It's probably not the best idea for you. Um, but understanding that if you are as a reality of, you know, coming of age and, and you know, geez, I mean, people people seem to do that. Uh, you know, 50 percent of kids <laughs> they seem to have tried something. I think this statistic was even like 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 30 percent of kids have used drugs on campus within the past 30 days, like on campus, some kind of crazy yeah. thing like that. Yeah. So so this kind of advocacy um, this alliance, and again, that also brings up issues of liability, man. I mean, if you know someone is using on, you know, or using drugs, and um, you know, you're not necessarily informing their parent, or they don't want you to. I mean, there's all sorts of fucking sticky stuff there, man. Um, you know, it, it's it's not an easy situation to navigate. But but again, you know me, Seth, man. Uh, gotta stop those. You know, can't have kids dying. Um, you know, if, if I have some, for example, even let's, let's take it out of the illegal realm. If I have some kid that's binge drinking, right. And, uh, and, and they are consistently getting fucking obliterated on like vodka on the weekends. Um, and that's all done in the context of like, you know, fraternity or, or some, or even again, dropping back to high school, like, 
I, I mean, you get you get kids like that, and you get overdoses, and you get death, right? Yeah. So, so even someone being able to intervene, not as like you have a drug problem, whatever, but it, but in terms of looking at this pattern, you know, mitigate, l- looking at the risk, mitigating risk, in whatever ways you can do harm reduction approaches, um, you know, all of that seems very reasonable. So I'm hoping uh, students, uh, students for sensible drug policy. Can can form that. I I do. I like the idea of having, you know, one of these because again, this is college organization. So having one of these folks in college be able to be like, okay, I'm taking on, you know, this particular school. That's my school, and I want to be available to kids in that school who might need to reach out. And there could be some sort of structure on that, and what you know, structure around advocacy and rules or whatever. But um. I don't know something to that effect, or formulating peer groups. I don't know, but I need I need kids helping other kids. I, I need yeah. that piece. That's that. And, and and again, like getting back to that girl who is like on you know taking opiates. And I mean, imagine this panel, right? You had Stanton Peel, right? Leader, you know, just a, the the you couldn't get more famous in terms of the you know addiction is not a disease guy and all his stuff. Uh, Francis Fu, who is like one of the the chapter heads or whatever in 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 the SSDP, you had uh, Barry Lesson, who is like, uh, and we'll talk about him in a second. In Families for Sensible Drug Policy, Harm Reduction Organization, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, and then another like m- main guy who did treatment or whatever. I, I mean, just this killer panel. And this girl is like, you know, and Francis, like she's talking about how her her mom was very under, you know sort of you know harm reductionistic in regard to look if you need me you can call me and it and 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 it was even difficult with that in terms of accessing her around drugs and and culturally and things like that um but this girl who spoke up had no one to turn to when she wanted to sort of reach out right she didn't she didn't really have Pure, she can reach out. She didn't feel like she could reach out to an adult. She wanted to reach out to her parents and had and didn't have the means to do that. So, so some type of organization that can be professional um, and, and sort of maybe facilitate that or be or have an ally or an advocate. Um, I hope SSDP really looks more into that. And um, they seem to be man. What what a hot shit organization in terms of. You know, they got a bunch of chapters. A lot of folks are motivated behind them. I, I mean, their tiers for donating are like fucking – they're too much money, Seth. I mean, I, yeah. they, they they got like these big tiers. Like they clearly have a heavy-duty structure. Um, I also hope that when, when, when people get out of there, I guess, you know, I hope they don't sort of, well, I'm done with my college and now I'm done with SSDP because especially if they're doing advocacy, you know, those relationships and connections that they might form with high school students or other students is is really valuable. So, um, yeah, I hope it's just not a one-off social justice thing like fight the power, but now I'm graduated and I have a job and a family and, you know, everything sort of goes away. Um, you know, you know there there are lives at stake behind all of this. So so I would just sort of emphasize that. Um, you know, another organization that's that's sort of again tertiary around this stuff, um, or actually not even tertiary. I guess they're secondary prevention. Um, Dance Safe was there. Um, yep. Yeah, the Dance Safe guys, and see the Dance Safe guys would be great in terms of advocacy. I, I, you know, that was the, the first thing I did when this girl asked a question, is, and and then the breakout session ended. I was like, "Yo, rally around! I, I need you, Dance Safe. I need you, SSDP. I need, 
this treatment person, there was this therapist there, and I'm like, what? Who is here who can do this? And Dan Safe, fucking God bless them. They are so willing to like jump up, pardon the pun, like jump up, right? And, uh, and, and sort of help. And like, they're almost like your first line of like, of um of sort of alignment if you are if you are using or whatever and you want like some sort of safe use um dansafe is right there my only problem with dansafe is that if i if if i need an advocate that's going to help a drug user access parenting or access their parent Man, dude, the Dr. Seuss socks and the and the and the and the fucking you know green hair man that could freak the parents out. So I'm yeah, totally I mean, de- go ahead. I'm sorry. They're limited in the sense that they can't come across as sort of the best group in dealing with parents and kids. And on top of that, they are focused a lot more on things like testing. Yeah. drugs and on party drugs even though that clearly is not yeah. encompassing the the majority yeah. of teen drug and, use so and I'm, yeah there's some limitations and i'm not knocking i'm not knocking the attire or any of that stuff at all um as a matter of fact that attire may be even better right i mean think of who the, who their who their primary sort of targets are their primary targets are are people who are using and they want them to use safely and i mean they're on they're on sort of my mission of the not dying mission i think they you know they're they're into policy but i think they're also much more into safety so I, and yeah I, the only reason i'm the only reason i'm i'm sort of knocking the clothing thing is because it doesn't allow my child or my my teen to adult advocacy model that i'm trying to sort of formulate here right that's the only reason i'm knocking it so so if you're out there in dance safe i'm not i'm not criticizing you guys at all it's just for the model if you guys could put on some really like sharp looking clothes uh if you are again i i just getting back i i think we need a peer something that works from the bottom up that can work at the peer level that is not an adult but at the peer level that can then you know uh you know support a a relationship uh, or a or a reestablishing or or a or a relationship that can facilitate even help if it's needed going from the adolescent up to the parent or an adult or whatever that that advocacy piece um and so I love Dan Safe and they were the first ones to jump up by the way when this question came up and, and and try to be helpful. Um, very cool organization. What else can we say about them, Seth? You know those guys better than I do. Uh, there's not much to say. I mean, it, I mean, one of the important things is focusing on the the testing side. I mean, you can't get too supportive of it to the point where it's this perfect method of of handling drugs because it really isn't. And some. There's some reason to believe that dealers are getting around some of the tests right now, as it is. Yeah. So they're intentionally tricking the tests. Um, oh because my it's, god! It's a, for it's real? A, well, because it doesn't tell you anything in many cases about purity. So you could have just a small amount of the drug you're hoping for combined with a bunch of other cheap things that are more dangerous, and you might get a positive oh, enough gosh. test that people are going to take it and assume that it's correct. On top of that, there's multiple drugs that test in the same way and all come up with the same reaction, so you're limited in that way as well. However, 
for the most part, a lot of the deaths that we've seen could be prevented just by doing that one thing, testing your drugs with a reagent test, and you could avoid things like dying from synthetic cathinones that are being sold as MDMA or dying from non-LSD drugs that are being sold as LSD. So it's an important little test you could do and an important step, especially when you're in a festival or party setting. So it's, it's nice that they're promoting the use of those, those tests. Yeah. And, and, and if there's one thing, you know, that's, it's interesting talking about Dan safe in these different, you know, groups, that's one thing that really came out of this whole thing is that these groups need to be working together. You know, dance safe. I mean, think of dance safe, right? Maybe they're engaging someone at the uh, rave scene, right? And they are, you know, having a good relationship with this person, but yet at the same time, they're seeing issues in regard to their use that could potentially be problematic. Maybe even at that time, um, in working with, you know, or talking with an individual, even then maybe accessing some of the, someone like Students for Sensible Drug Policy, if that could go in a different direction, or accessing, uh, you know, harm reduction. All, all these groups really working together seems like a critical wraparound. All, you know, all of it together make a nice wraparound model of, of sort of care and support and harm reduction and all that. Um, so everyone has their place. Um, that also came up in one of the sessions about, you know, you don't have to fix everything. You don't have to fix the drug war. You don't, you know, do your part and do that well, right? So Dan, safe. You guys do your well, but but of course, knowing other resources that are out there, and that was that's a big part of the conference. SSDP as well. Um, you know, getting everyone together, uh, getting a little bit more into the treatment side. I wanted to bring up three, actually, especially. Um, so you have it's funny. You have Students for Sensible Drug Policy, amazing organization. Then you have uh, now this is where this is finally my people, right? So, so one of the things, Seth, is I'm running around this conference, and I'm looking for like my treatment people. Like, where are my brothers and sisters that are working the front lines of treatment? Now I'm. I'm seeing methadone people. I'm seeing, uh, you know, um, I'm seeing folks, you know, preaching the, you know, the the more, you know, needle exchange and all that. I can't begin to tell you how disappointed I was that there was no representation from any major drug treatment facility or drug treatment network anywhere. Right? You had. Three groups. You, from what I saw, you had Families for Sensible Drug Policy, which is run by a psychologist named Barry Lesson, who apparently, like six years ago, saw the light and was like, "Oh man, oh man, if I turn in, turn away another client because they're not getting sober, I'm gonna fucking jump off a cliff." So, so he starts Family for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, uh, by the way, I, I go to their forum uh, or, or one of their community sessions and I talk about multi-systemic therapy, intensive home base. Um, I'm surrounded by like parents with like lost children, dude. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's fucking so heartbreaking. And, um, and, and, you know, they had nowhere to turn. And in all this drug war shit, you have advocates, you have users. The parents are the least knowledgeable or I should say the families the families are the ones who are left out of the drug dealer drug user relationship they're left out a lot of the times of the drug user treatment relationship they're left out of the probation 
uh, client, you know, probation, uh, drug user relationship. Essentially, they're the ones who are on the, the sidelines sort of watching. Now, occasionally treatment engages with these guys and gives them, you know, generally some bullshit or bad ideas to do, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, a group like Families for Sensible Drug Policy they have adopted a model, and, and this is this is what is so needed when you talk about and, and the idea of drug treatment. First of all, no treatment should be drug and drug anything. You should not lead any kind of therapeutic milieu with the word drug. Um, yeah. You know, pe- people are whole, biopsychosocial beings. They're whole beings. They're physical beings. They're psychological beings. They're social beings. You could argue they're spiritual beings as well. Um, but you know, when you when on every model of treatment. You know, all you're doing is taking the person where they're at and moving them towards a better, better anything. You know, it you you would never in anything else, uh, if if you were treating something else, insist that the person takes a particular path uh, towards getting well. And unfortunately, that's exactly what drug treatment does. But but it's someone at, at a group like um, Families for Sensible Drug Policy. They're looking at a, what's called harm reduction psychotherapy, and I should bring up the other group, uh, which is Center for Optimal Living, which is Andrew Tatarsky, and he was also there. Both these psychologists, him and Barry, were are so fantastic at looking at the client, looking at uh, where they're at, looking at uh, what they could benefit from. You know, aligning with the client and moving with the client through the stages of change uh, and whatever that may be. By the way, I should also I also want to include one more group, um, HAMS, H-A-M-S, which is Harm Reduction for Alcohol. And this is by a guy named Kenneth Anderson. He also does the Harm Reduction podcast, um, which he hadn't done in a while. I hope he does that. But but their their motto, by the way, I mean, to give you an idea of the epitome of harm reduction, their motto is better is better. And essentially what they're saying is, it, you know, if you come in there and you want to keep drinking, great. If you want to come in there and reduce your drinking, great. If you want to come in there and not get a DUI, great. If you want to come in there and, 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 and just simply, uh, you know, uh, any, any goal you have towards improvement um, is, is harm reduction for alcohol. And, and you could say the same for Center for Optimal Living and uh, Families for uh, Sensible Drug Policy. All these groups are essentially infusing real therapy and I call it real therapy because that's that all models of therapy are based on you know therapeutic alliance except for fucking drug treatment which is like uh, yeah I get the alliance as long as you know they're compliant with abstinence and and doing your thing um, but all of these groups are like a huge shot in the arm uh, so to speak for drug treatment in terms of working with the person where they're at working with the family system and and sort of taking the next step now now these are small groups man these are like little tiny organizations in new york um i I, i'm not sure where the the hams harm reduction for alcohol guy is out of but these are like these little tiny groups and nowhere to be found was your hazelton your betty fords your uh you know your pathways your 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 larger organizations that Clearly, their clients are being harmed through the drug war. At the same time, they also have this wonderful feeder system from the courts into sober living and all this shit. So so isn't it crazy that the greatest harm that befalls a drug user is typically 
um, circumstantial as a result of prohibition, whether it be um, injecting dirty drugs, whether it be affording uh, drugs through prostitution, whether it be affording drugs through crime, whether it be the risk of harm to one in terms of being in, in, in the illegal market and trying to navigate that to obtain drugs. None of the fucking treatment people were there to speak to that. Uh, or to be a part of that or to say, yeah, we're going to stand up and 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 now I even hear that like treatment is sort of, you know, oh, like so, they don't even take that position. Like they're sort of resistant to that and they're like slowing the process and, oh, you know, prohibition works and you need this coercive model and, and all this stuff. Um, what What do you think about that, Seth? What's your take on that? It's not too surprising that there was no presence from conventional treatment there when you consider the first um the first day the one movie that was shown was basically saying that all the conventional treatment is wrong i'm inclined i'm inclined to have that same general position i don't think there's too much for conventional treatment to offer to the majority of people uh and you see that with the general uh, generally accepted success rates so it makes sense to focus on alternative treatments when they have potentially more promise, but it's a weird situation because this is the forefront on the side of sort of alternative viewpoints about drug policy and education and addiction treatment. And yet the vast majority of people are still going through conventional. So it's a weird how do we bridge this so that because clearly people aren't being sent to any of these alternative yeah like places you, you don't and the courts yeah. are definitely not sending them to alternative treatments so yeah i mean we were hearing about how methadone you know certain drug courts are brocket by, by the way you did see a lot of that sort of knocking right you you know some drug courts are, are blocking access to methadone maintenance. I should say that 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 discussion really seemed to come down on the individual court. Um, but but the idea of you know even that film you're talking about, right? So so we're in the business of recovery. That's the film, and they're talking about the twelve step disease model and how pervasive that is for for better or for worse and i would say well based on the film obviously uh 99% of that film was for worse um and then you had at the end of that a a sort of de- you know you had you know one side of the room i you know methadone maintenance would have saved lives and why didn't they do that i'm probably on the other side like you know heroin maintenance oh that would have been all these deaths are unnecessary and then in another side of the room um, Ibogaine, well, I don't want to be on methadone, and if they would have just used Ibogaine and then somebody else, well, we should let, you know, freedom freedom reign and whatever. And 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 it was uh, it was so, again, I mean, that is why I, I sort of departed from the conventional drug, you know, just drug treatment in general is, every, you know, when anybody feels they have a path to success or enlightenment, and they push that shit down everybody else's throat, and and I even mean that for bashing twelve step, um, yeah. You, you know, and and the same, and at the same time, twelve step should be responsible for that in regards to, and maybe not twelve step, but but um, you know, conventional treatment in terms of this is how you need to do it to get better. You know, anytime you hear that, 
it is it is a not a good place to take, man, because you're immediately separating yourself from your client if that's what they're not feeling. You know, and maybe they are feeling that. Maybe, oh man, I went to a meeting with my my therapist, even he was there, and I feel like this is good for me and close. Well, great. But 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 to watch like treatment beat up on it beat up on each other in terms of even the the different you know alternative models, and then to not have you know even conventional treatment there, um, they're a huge part of the puzzle, man, and it really bothers me, um, you know, and, and even being uh, getting back to family sensible drug policy, watching how. Uh, you know how conventional treatment i mean you know sort of treated the families and their you know kids going in and out of these places 10 you know 10 20 times um it doesn't work anything any better than anything else uh it's just you know there i i think i would like to see drug policy alliance engage those guys more you know you had national institute of drug abuse come and they're you know I mean, you had poor Maureen, right? <laughs> one, one neuroscientist from the National Institute of Drug Abuse. She's on stage, and and they're fighting about the, uh, you know, uh, addiction is a disease model, and and Maureen's the only one representing. Well, we see these biopsychosocial changes in the brain. Well, NIDA even showed up, right? I mean, that's pretty cool of NIDA to show up and, and at least try to put their position out there and how they feel about this. But uh, but no abstinence-only treatment even to talk about that. I mean, and again, you even had people there who are into abstinence. I mean, the the one uh, person who, who was talking like, I used Ibogaine and quit heroin and didn't experience withdrawals and all that. I mean, she was all stoked to be abstinent, you know? Yeah. And well, it was all – I don't know. See, a lot of these cases, it's a, the, the treatment outcome is going to be abstinence because what, that's what people want. But when you hear – sort of the abstinence-based treatment that's generally just associated with conventional treatment. So I don't know if the two necessarily go together. Um, it's not like conventional treatment has a uh, – is the only thing promoting some form of abstinence because that's definitely not the, the case. You have a, lo- a lot of alternative treatments that do the same thing, and people are just coming from the perspective that the alternative treatments get you to whatever your goal is faster and more reliably than conventional so yeah i guess it's where people are coming from well and especially the blending right i mean a long time ago when i was working in methadone maintenance um i proposed the blending of it of our intensive outpatient program with our methadone treatment center right there should be no reason why our methadone patient shouldn't be sitting in an intensive outpatient and receive you know and receiving good education and oh well hey in my life you know methadone seems to be working for me and how i manage and improve myself oh really well that's interesting because for me you know not being on methadone is actually something i enjoy and that's working for me those two guys should be sitting next to each other in treatment um yeah, yeah there's no reason to to just in the same way you have someone who's in there on Abilify or or um you know or Lexapro or whatever and they're sitting next to someone who's maybe not on those things. So so it's funny, you know, the one thing in in fucking drug drug stuff like addiction or treatment or whatever, there's such a there's generally like a rigidity, you know, for for what works or what doesn't or or how you're supposed to do it. Um and and you sort of saw this, but but I I still want to see I want to see conventional treatment 
in these conferences, man. I want to see I want to see greater understanding even from, you know, and, and it could flow both ways. I mean. Convention, but they're so fucking rigid with the twelve steps a lot of the but that's time. A, that's the thing. What do you think they would actually have to add other than just defending their existence? Okay, so I think what they would have to add is the same voice or the same type of voices that other programs have, which are look, you know, for me, I found the abstinence only thing. Yes, and, and I'm defending this model because I think that if people could get past, you know, even the idea of maintenance therapy. I'm, I don't feel this way, but, you know, what they might say. Um, if you get past your maintenance therapy and experience this true feeling of sobriety, that that is really tremendous and, and just have the voice and maybe not even defend themselves, but also maybe it, even on the other side for the maintenance therapies and the, and the harm reduction folks as well, maybe they could also be sort of hearing and learning um, again, you know, all this drug stuff, I mean, I think it has to go forward as a collaboration. I, I don't think we can sort of leave conventional treatment behind and just sort of I, – I, well, maybe we have to. I mean, look at Obama now, right? He is like full – yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that. I, I kind of feel like – just sort of a thought that I had that conventional treatment is sort of the the worst possible situation because you're doing – two things you're you're not addressing the underlying issue and you're also getting rid of the support mechanism that they have which is their drug use so mm-hmm. you are just leaving them perfectly exposed and there's some reason to believe that abstinence for a lot of people actually doesn't get rid of addiction it ends up just resulting in them having other unhealthy relationships with whether it be food cigarettes uh other emotional trouble because they're the reason why they got it they were addicted in the first place has never been addressed so i'd much Mm -hmm. rather see people still be on drugs in a healthier way in a safer way or have something like the ibogaine which or ayahuasca where the theory is that you could actually dig up the reason why they were addicted in the first place and get rid of that driving factor so conventional treatment is kind of the worst i mean a lot even among the people who are what we would view as successful because they just stopped using heroin or whatever, they're not necessarily in a great mental state. Which is like four out of five people who quit drugs without any formal treatment whatsoever when coming out of addiction even. I mean, the vast majority, you heard that. But yeah, but man, wouldn't wouldn't that be a great panel, right? Wouldn't a panel that has, you know, the executive director for Hazleton... Uh, the exec, you know, uh, uh, Pam out of the Harm Reduction Center uh, out of California. I mean, I, I I love the discussion and the interplay, and and I think it's really important. I think the balkanization of treatment is. Um, I I just I just want I want the discussion. I want there to be if if they're so if we're so into defending or they're so into defending themselves. Um, I, I think there can be learning all around. Even if you disagree, I think there can be learning. And and I and I kind of resented, um, you know, I resented the 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 drug court discussion. I felt it was uh, anti drug court through and through. I there was some you know some of the uh, audience members who spoke up in there felt that um, that it you know hey this isn't how our drug courts run. Why you know why are you guys tearing into drug court like that. 
Um, and so, and so, when you don't have the discussion, when you don't have sort of other other players in this, it's very easy to become an echo chamber and just wind up saying what you believe and not really hearing other sides or, or other parts and things like that. Um, so, yeah. In the case of drug courts, which is sort of the the course treatment panel. Um, in that situation, I'm pretty sure there's nothing particularly beneficial about them beyond them being better for some people due to the fact that the alternative is going to jail. I mean, that's not a great reason for their existence because from a true treatment perspective, that's not generally a good way to go about doing anything and just holding jail over somebody's head is is wrong in, in so many different ways that it does seem like a, like was brought up by, I believe, Ethan Edelman, that it's sort of like it was a few steps forward and even more back as a result of their existence. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've seen it where it's a collaborative experience and sort of, you know, uh, you have the probationary component and it's holding a person and saying, look, you got to do these things. There there clearly should be better mechanisms to do that. There are better ways of, of motivating and things like that. Um, you know, that's that's what they're trying to do. And, and put it this way, I've seen it be a lot better than the alternative in terms of jail and things like that. Um, it can also be this incredibly punitive, you know, set up for failure uh, in certain places, and like we talked about, how they can, you know, insist that you're not on a maintenance therapy or methadone or something like that, and and there's no standardization in the drug courts. That that was the biggest thing that came out of it for me was, um, you know, depending on who you're, who the judge is, you can have this great or or terrible experience. I mean, the girl who was speaking, uh, who it actually spoke on behalf of drug for, courts being beneficial. Um, you know, she was thrilled with the experience and thought it really gave her a, a mechanism to stop and and uh, and gave her an alternative to the sentence. Again, it is holding that overhead, but for her, it was you but know, very, yeah. Even so. even with individual anecdotes, I wouldn't say that it ever justifies the existence of the system as a whole. I mean, we should yeah. be getting to a point where they would never need to exist in the first place. There's still something inherently wrong with you know, kidnapping people and <laughs> telling them what to do. So, right. Yeah, your libertarian sensibilities, I'm sure. Uh, well, even you. if it's not the libertarian one, which, I mean, libertarian gets rid of drug courts immediately, but on top of that, from a true treatment perspective, I don't I don't think there's much reason to believe that the outcomes are particularly good, and it's, and it's pretty bad when you have a system where if the treatment fails, and this applies to pretty much every drug court, if the system fails, the treatment fails, then you end up in jail, but you've also lost even your ability to sort of fight the sentence and or take a take a plea deal like you normally would and have a lower uh, sentence. I mean, that's a horrible situation. So for every one person who actually becomes clean, you know, in quotes as a result of the drug court, you have somebody who their life was ruined even more. So, yeah, um, the last and you may have some some you want to talk about maybe breakout sessions but but one of the people that also really stood out for me uh was Anne Marie Cockburn and Anne Marie Cockburn was uh, a mother who lost her child or or whose child died at a at a dance party um when she had taken uh too much MDMA 
And uh, I did her website, by the way, is whatmarthadidnext.com, www.whatmarthadidnext.com. And she has a book there, and she has a picture of her child. And and what was so incredible, Seth, I mean, the, um, you know, when after her child died in her healing process, so now she kind of advocates. Again, this is a, this is a mother whose child died from drugs and is like a – advocate against prohibition right and advocate you know and and another thing how she talked about how she had reached out to the guy who sold her or the or gave the her daughter the drugs that she overdosed on um and you you felt the healing in that process of reconciliation um i i wanted i was so happy seth you were able to meet her because like I said in the beginning of this podcast, a lot of times people, they see drug policy and things from a macro level. And yeah. um, wasn't wasn't that mother amazing and sweet and just beautiful? I mean, what was it like for you meeting her? Well, great in a number of ways. The first with the way that she now views essentially drug laws and, and, and sees how they contributed to her daughter's death, but then also on a whole nother level dealing with the other person involved, the dealer, who when you really sit down and think about the situation, it's just horrible in, in so many ways. I believe she yeah. said that that he was only – the dealer was only you know 17 or something like that. So when you really think about a situation where this person did not want to kill somebody and now he's going to go through the rest of his life – knowing that what he did was responsible for somebody dying i mean that's a that's a tough thing and mm. having that response from the mother just results in healing in so many different areas not just on her side but on but on his side i'm sure because you know it not only do the policies need to change but you know you see these little anecdotes of what can come about as a result you can turn you know, 17 year olds into murderers and you can, you can end up killing, uh, other teenagers who just want to experiment with drugs. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it, the, the response is, is great. And it's just sad on multiple levels, yeah. but actually happened. There, there was a few of those types of, of individuals there that I got to meet. I, I mean, people had been affected, but like there was one woman I met who was like a marijuana policy advocate and had been from the 80s. And she was like studying to be a lawyer and like got busted with like a, a little bag of weed. <laughs> and then like the cops came back and, and even where she had like like baby powder or, or just – you know, in the 80s, things especially could just spiral. Well, not even the 80s. I mean, things can still spiral out of control when it comes to cops and and whatever. And, and just how affected her life was, how affected this mother's life was, how affected these cops' lives are, how affected – you know, uh, the, the, the non-drug user, the, the 90% of people who maybe, you know, aren't using or whatever are. And, and, and just to see the whole, you know, the mosaic of lives affected by the drug war, you know, that's, that was this conference, you know, from top to bottom. Um, yeah, that 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 was that was kind of an amazing thing, and it, and it kind of one of the things I I wrote down here again is uh, 
drug war ending question mark parentheses not even close <laughs> not, <laughs> not even close dude if you're out there and you're like man we're on the cusp of marijuana you know what i tell you what don't like even Ira Glasser, former you know former president of the ACLU, spoke at the end. He's like, "Don't think for a second that you can ever stop running in this race. There'll be no end. You'll 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 take it as far as you can, as 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 long as you can. But um, you know, maybe maybe another fifty years out. I mean, I'm not sure, but uh." But that was that was sort of the impression I came in 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 leaving there. Um, how about for you? Well, I definitely think we're coming around the corner for marijuana, at least having it in most individual states be legal or mostly legal. But for the other drugs, unfortunately, when you hear end the drug war, whether it's from politicians or from other individuals outside of politics that tends to really just refer to marijuana, which is unfortunate because it's not the only drug. And anybody that's involved in this area should know that at this point, that it's not just about marijuana. Marijuana is perhaps the easiest drug to legalize. So the idea that you would ever begin to slow down now is, 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 you know, unfortunate. And it's, and it's kind of concerning when you see the polls and see what people think about, legalizing pretty much any other substance and it's you know eight percent of the population yeah Yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done isn't it amazing with marijuana how it you know even you know here you have a drug right no overdose zero (laughs) zero forever you know you can almost picture if it had like you know, like like the, there were those two r- related deaths in Colorado where like one kid jumped off the the balcony, and like another, you know, and some other one other uh, sort of obscure peripheral kind of result of of him using an an edible, right? Yeah, and you can almost feel like the slightest little tip towards you know youth drug use going up is like, well, let's shut that down as quickly as possible. You know, it's obviously a huge problem. It's like people are almost looking for the slightest little indicator to like to keep it illegal or to, you know, not move things forward. I mean, it's thank God it's as safe as it is and and potentially beneficial for people with epilepsy and cancer and inflammation and all that. Um, You know, thank God it really is that safe because it almost seems like there's a sense of if anything was even remotely risky on it, that could just be clearly the dominant narrative and, and we'll keep it illegal and just for the, for the public safety. And doesn't it kind of feel like that? Oh, entirely. I don't think, uh, I don't even know if we would have ever gotten to legalization in any of these States without the big public change with medical marijuana. Unfortunately, you don't have that for other drugs. So, you know, that's that's why the arguments and the way that people have argued for marijuana legalization, it kind of concerns me because you can't bring those arguments to everything else. So you have the general population who is like, yeah, we kind of went along with you with marijuana. We got your point. And now we're, it's it's fine to legalize. It doesn't seem to be doing too much harm. And you cannot make even one of the same arguments for any other drug. Yeah. So now what are we going to 
end up with just being stuck because I think it's going to be a lot harder to legalize pretty much everything else. Well, it even shows you, like, I mean, the, the the pardon, again, pardon the pun and going back to alcohol, but, like, the tolerance that people must have had for alcohol and drinking. I mean, either two things would happen back in, like, the 20s. Either it was so fucking unbelievably violent in terms of, like, gangster prohibition and people just getting, like, machine gunned in the street. I mean, either it was so much that, but when you think of how much like harm alcohol, either that or people were just like, well, there's violence and there's fighting, but hey, you know, hey, Mackie, you know, a good old scuff, you know, uh, fisticuffs in the street over alcohol, you know, like either it was like all those things are sort of part of human life or the or the alternative was so bad. But I mean, look at like, and I the only thing I could think of like liquid, like GHB comes as a liquid, right? Isn't that like mm-hmm. a liquid? Yeah. Okay. So when I think of like GHB, if GHB caused the harms that like alcohol caused, like if people were getting into fights over it, um, drunk, throwing up all over the place, overdose, you, you would never be able to 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 even get remotely close to decriminalizing something like alcohol now. I mean, nobody would even be willing to tolerate like a, a like a tenth of the shit that it causes. I think you know what I mean. True, it's actually an interesting situation because you just uh, just brought up GHB, and I'm thinking there is this entire class of drugs that is that are pretty similar to alcohol, and yet they have almost none of the same truly negative effects on society, and could even be like pretty easy to legalize from that perspective. But due to their their nature as having a, a stigma associated with them, they probably won't be. Something like GHB has a pretty significant stigma associated with it or other uh, GABA drugs. And yet, alcohol is a GABA, GABA drug, but it also has a much greater connection to something like violence or assault than GHB will ever have. Oh yeah. So it, it, it's a very weird situation, I guess. It, yeah, uh, it, it's amazing that it got a, it's amazing that it even was able to come out of prohibition. That's what I'm saying. Either either it was the the gang violence was so extreme that people were just like enough of this or it was just like we're tolerant of this level of violence and drunken, you know, and and drunken behavior or whatever. And so we'll 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 deal with that or be okay with that. And now society is in a place, you know, someone fucking stubs their toe and it's like, you know, ban ban rough concrete. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's warnings on plastic bags to not suffocate. It's it's that kind of a world where we're almost like a much more intolerant world, um, you know, around drugs than even we kind of were before in a sense. It's it's kind of weird like that. Well, yeah, the, the you see so many people now responding to some of the research chemicals and you have, you know, 10,000 people use a drug and two people die and it is a national crisis. And right. you just have to think for a second about, well, it doesn't alcohol kill like a lot of people. And oh, once you add in, year, man, and once you add in all the people that have gone into fights and have uh, sexually assaulted somebody and just the the many many 
Three hundred billion in terms yeah. of productivity lost. How many people get, get call in sick for a hangover? You don't see that for marijuana. No, and yet people are making the argument that marijuana is a concern because it'll decrease worker productivity. Like, yeah. it, I'm sorry, but if you get high one night, the next day your productivity is going to be way less affected than if you were hungover or yeah. if you were, which is not uncommon, a little bit drunk on the job. So. Right. And so it's like, well, really, you can't make that argument for marijuana and then not make it for pretty much everything else. So, yeah, it's just it is it is interesting how we've gotten to the situation where we're really intolerant of new drugs and freak out about them in the same way as if we couldn't possibly have learned from any of our history. Like when you see these crazy responses to so-called zombie drugs and and these sort of really supposedly violent substances. And you only have to look back a few decades to be like, oh, wait, well, the same scare tactic was used for cocaine. And then we all kind of woke up and realized that wasn't the case. But right. nobody makes the connection nowadays. And there is this desire to ban immediately and sort of just ask questions later. It's a weird approach. Did you want to speak at all uh, about any of the the – and again, as we – now, as we explore the future and we've talked about um, sort of some of the things that we've seen, I'm on this kick with this primary prevention program and trying to to really move that forward wherever I'm at. I, I can't wait to be able to be an advocate for education just like the podcast. But did you want to talk at all about the psychedelic stuff um, or, or anything like that? Uh, it, it, was that? Was that a priority to you or something that you wanted to bring up or or – did we want to close where we're at? Well, I think it's worth discussing a little bit just because, in my opinion, the psychedelic area is the most likely area for us to find the next marijuana. And what I mean by that is a new, another set of drugs or an individual drug that will go down the medical route and then pivot into some form of general legal access. And you're mm -hmm. going to see this most likely well before the normal recreational substances. And in the case of the conference, the main talk about psychedelics was, was specifically on the medical uses and the medical effects. And it is the case that things like LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, Ibogaine, these are all drugs that seem to be as good or better than conventional drugs for things like depression, anxiety, addiction. So it's an important area for us to be focused on I do always get a little bit concerned with this desire among the psychedelic community, which is something I saw even a little bit at the conference, to jump to this view that psychedelics have such a place in society that they could fix many of the problems that we see. And you even see people running some of these groups that will suggest you know, give enough psychedelics uh, yeah. to the Middle East. I was on board with that, Seth. And, I was... and we've and we fixed, you know, Sunni Shia conflict. <laughs> I was a believer, man. I was telling you, I wanted chemtrails of of MDMA or, or being yeah. rained down over the Middle East. I, I, I was a believer, and then you sort of, you know, sort of walked me back off of that. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting, by the way, for the, those listening, when you're in one of these psychedelic sort of rooms. 
the the level of or, or the frequency of laughter and if you're doing like a uh, if you're doing like a, a behavioral uh, a behavioral occurrence chart or you're you know you're tracking your behavior I did notice the the giggling in that room is about three times as, as much as like every yeah. other room like it's like you know psychedelics da, 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 ha, 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 ha. it's like you know um, that yeah. was kind of funny and everybody, you, everybody, it kind of feels like they're on like a little, like little mini trip when they're in that room. I mean, maybe yeah. they are, but, yeah. uh, yeah, I was a real believer, Seth. And you, you, you know, I thought we were, um, I, I really did see it as saving the world. And I guess Rick Doblin and all those guys sort of see that too. But, uh, you were a little bit more cautious on that, especially due to set and setting and, uh, in those sorts of things. Well, it, it's, it entirely is based upon the, the effects of psychedelics are entirely based upon where you're coming from. So if you are coming from a normal average Western person perspective, looking to improve their life a little bit, then you're going to get moderate to significant benefits. Or if you're trying to deal with your addiction, then you can have that applied when you're talking about improving the general society and the global society I'm sorry, but I don't don't think there's anything to suggest that psychedelics work in that way because you only have to look through history to see instances of psychedelics being used in truly spiritual ways and yet being totally messed up spiritual uh, outcomes and opinions on the world. So, And when you apply that to something like religions in the Middle East or any violent group of people, then... I, there's nothing to suggest that you are going to end up having a bunch of great empathy that on, for the yeah, rest of humanity arrive everybody uh, from that. Everybody get together, try to love one another right and, now. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, just think about, you know, uh, people who – think about something like uh, Tim Leary. I mean he's – Western person, enthusiastic about educated, enthusiastic about drugs, and yet it becomes more egotistical as his psychedelic use progresses. So apply that to even more messed up inherent personalities among people around the world, and you suddenly realize that it's not 7 billion people that should use psychedelics. It's not even maybe 1 billion. It's only a small, relatively small group of the population that is at this current time in 2015 going to benefit from using these drugs whereas you have people truly believing that if these were simply more prevalent then the world would be an inherently better place and people i think just end up missing most of the time the fact that the US and even European cultures are different than various cultures around the world, and you can't apply what works in one place to every place. Mm-hmm. So just a just a word of caution. I think they're going to be great tools and far better than what we currently have in many cases mm-hmm. than normal routes of therapy or, or uh, sort of spiritual tools and things like that. But they're not going to fix everything, and they're not going to work for everybody. So... We, we've got to keep that in mind. Yeah, I was I was sort of sold on the uh, well, not sold, but I was thinking, okay, well, we have this, you know, MDMA, for example, creating this empathetic experience, and that empathy immediately wanting to join with 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 uh, you know, you put a you put a you know an is Israeli hardliner and a, 
and uh, and uh, uh, you know Palestinian in the same room and and then you give them MDMA and immediately their brains become empathetic with each other and all that. But it may just be where you know the psychedelic state is also about um, you know really resonating with their own personal beliefs and experience essentially again getting back to that idea of an echo chamber man you you you, you know the universe you live in you know you, you your brain sort of wants to validate that universe and um if if you believe or you're in the type of state where hey you know when i take mdma it's about connecting all everybody and bringing it together well that's that's uh that's my experience but for somebody else it may be a very different experience um, that set and setting on how those drugs play out. I'm very interested. Um, yeah. And also hearing some of those outcomes in terms of, um, you know, getting through a withdrawal experience and, and these types of things. It was, uh, it was very exciting. So, uh, yeah. So well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really on board with, I'd love to see what some of these drugs will do for just treating addiction, because I think that's one of the yeah. best areas when we're talking about yeah. sort of, the problem with some drugs, um, it'd be awesome if it is the case that, say, 50% of people can essentially be cured of their addiction as a result of maybe some therapy with Ibogaine or something like that. I mean, that'd be awesome. And I'd take 30, 40, 50% over 5 or 10% any day. Yeah. So, uh, plus, there's there's reasons to believe, just like with MDMA when dealing with PTSD, that the how long the treatment lasts is significant significantly greater than normal therapy or medication. So, yeah, it's a it's a exciting time that we're living in. Unfortunately, we have this absurd situation where there's actually a class of drugs that the government deems so unacceptable that they make it nearly impossible to even try using them in a medical setting and there there is no reason for schedule one to have ever existed in my opinion so right uh it's, it's unfortunate that we're still dealing with that and unable to do research as a result yeah schedule one's an amazing class i mean no yeah. therapeutic value and you can't even look at it you can't talk Basically, about it yeah. it's, it's just it's a substance considered so dangerous that like it it can't even exist in the realm of humans uh, for its harms. Um, yeah, it'll, that, it'll take you, you know, three decades just to get one trial done. And if right. science moves at that pace, we'll, we'll never really get anywhere with our knowledge. Yeah. Hey, um, finally, I also want to say I got some, uh, n- another couple of, uh, another couple of, um, participants on my, uh, cannabis craving cure that seems to have, uh, been effective and folks who had been really using heavily and were at the comforts and had some discomfort found that the ibuprofen regimen that I had talked about uh, had provided some relief. That was exciting. I also found a um, a researcher who referred me actually to a guy in Dartmouth College who uh, or Dartmouth University who is uh, hopefully going to follow up on that. So I got I got the guy to finalize um, or at least a, a lead to a gentleman who may finalize my uh, my findings there. Um, I'm also going to reach out to National Institute of Drug Abuse and uh, Marine, um, who I had met, and, and hopefully um, maybe they can do something too. So so how about you, Seth? Where do you go with the knowledge and, and sort of what you picked up from the conference? Did, did, it, did it sort of inspire you or bring you in any particular direction uh, having been there? 
Well, it definitely convinced me that I need to do a lot more on the education side. I think policy is is largely covered in a lot of ways, and that's not where my focus is anyways. So yeah. uh, this education side of, of doing things like the drug classroom has definitely become a bigger focus. So putting out a lot more content and communicating with a lot more people, hopefully um, transitioning into also having some form of uh, Q&A, being a resource where people can actually ask questions and get information before uh, they're using a drug. So uh, I definitely became convinced that that was uh, a good path to go down. Because when you look at the conference, out of those 1,500 people, you had maybe, you know, a few dozen who were truly focused on education compared to policy or uh, addiction and things like that. So. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an area where not many people are comfortable. They're not very interested. Whereas me knowing what like what drugs do, their pharmacology, like that's that's the only place I'm I truly have a big interest. So uh, it's in people clearly need the info. Yeah, that was cool. You know, and myself too, having been on this this new education you know front, um, it, that that's what it allowed me to to do as well. Was like hone in more on the education thing. I would say in the whole conference that there might have been maybe ten people uh, who who are kind of into doing what we do in terms of accurate information. I mean, some people are doing it peripherally, like marijuana. You know, it's not bad and and that yada yada. But they're mainly on that policy front. There weren't many people who were who were coming from this, you know, drugs are neither good nor bad, um, and we want to sort of educate to help others, and that was kind of cool. That that, you know, it, it took where it took what we had were, had gone in with, and then sort of refined that message. I got the great new tools with the Safety First program. I'm actually going to be meeting with um, with actually some stakeholders in the Department of Education next week, probably Department of Health after that. Uh, drug policy forum in Hawaii uh, around that same time and just really starting to line up this uh, this prevention program that that can sort of be in schools and and or, or getting beyond sort of the dare model of just say no and getting into a um, yeah just say no is fine however um, with use we need to ex- uh, you know understand and educate and empower and protect. Um, and just not take our hands off and say, "Hey, don't use and hope for the best." That's that's not good enough anymore. So, so that's nice that it, it kind of like um, you know it it kind of filled in some of the blanks, gave us some of the leads to do that. It really did. It gave me the tools and the connections I need to to, to make that happen. I don't want to do this stuff in isolation. I can't do it in isolation. We we need sort of the support um, and and found that through not only the the organizations that were there. But also through Drug Policy Alliance itself, I think everyone was really excited that we were there, and um, we got good reviews, man. So um, yeah, so that's cool. Um, anything else you want to say before we uh, conclude today? No, I think that's it. All right, um, I guess we'll be back, uh, Seth. Uh, next week uh, we can jump on with uh, something else. If you want to bring up a topic or we want to get into any kind of new drugs, you got any ideas on what we might be doing? I have probably hundreds. So. We'll, we'll definitely have something. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it, it's just uh, – it's it's going to be interesting to see how things change and also how, like, the rubber meets the road on, on with the new knowledge and, and how things move forward. And we'll keep you all informed out there. Um, Seth, where can uh, people find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Seth A. Fitzgerald. And then on YouTube, 
the channel is The Drug Classroom. So those are the main places. Uh, and then you can find anything else I do from one of those areas. Great. And you can find me at theaddictivepodcast.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, A-D-D-I-C-T-I-S-T. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for tuning in. And, uh, actually you could also send us questions. If you ever want to send me questions, by the way, or propose topics, you can do that, uh, at info at the addictive podcast.com. Uh, I'd love to uh, get your feedback. And also, if you're also feeling inspired or want to move in your own direction, uh, in terms of anything like education or treatment, God knows the world needs all the help it can get in this area. So, um, Yep, we'll keep on trying and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Take, have a good day, Seth, and, uh, and have a, a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. You too. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.